Hello, Thursday morning, 24th day of Kislev, which is the eve of Hanukkah. Hanukkah begins tonight after sundown. I'm super excited. It's uh, interesting to point out that really today should be the first day of Hanukkah because on the 24th day was the day of victory. And the idea is the reason why we do it the day after, unlike July 4th, Cinco de Mayo, which all celebrate the conclusion of the battle, is because on Hanukkah, we are not celebrating the military conquest, but we're celebrating the result of the said conquest. That victory, on our terms, is rededicating ourselves to Judaism, rededicating ourselves to freedom and our family values, and that is the... Uh, Reason why we do it on the twenty fifth, Chanu, the Chafei, they rested on the twenty fifth. That's the uh, the word Chanukah, um, rededicating ourselves, reinaugurating ourselves. That is the greatest cause of celebration. We're about to conclude the first section of the book, Chanukah, capturing the light. It's split up into three sections. Perfect timing as we uh, progress tomorrow into Chanukah itself and the second section. The wrap up the first section, page 69 here, and he asks a, a interesting question on a purely intellectual plane. Greece offered an approach to life in the world that is both impressive and appealing. According to them, every meaningful question can be answered and every natural phenomenon explained by means of the human intellect alone. Not only ancient Greece, but secular humanism today that's a very impressive and appealing approach to life that we could discover and explain everything by means of humanity alone so we're in lies judaism's rebuttal of such a system what's the jewish answer and he writes that it lies not in the fact that the it lies in the fact that the torah does not reject one's findings regarding the natural world so it's awesome science is awesome architecture is awesome beauty is awesome music is awesome However, these natural forces are themselves the product and expression of a higher reality that ultimately is meant to guide one's life. So let's use art, for example. If art itself is the goal, so then you could take a banana and tape it to a wall, and that can be an expression of art. Music, as long as the, the harmonies are tight and the music is tight, if that in itself is the goal, so then that's what defines it as beautiful. As opposed to, if it's supposed to be an expression of a higher reality, so then the banana on the wall is not going to cut it. Because it has to be that the, the viewer sees it and feels a, a, an expression of a higher reality. And not that it's inherent in the art itself or the music what what is the music evoking you? What emotion? What imagery? What feelings does it evoke? That's what's going to define its beauty according to uh, the expression of the higher reality that's meant to guide one's life, English for Torah. In this regard, he quotes the Zohar. The Zohar in Parshas Truma, section 2, 161, side A. Hashem looked into the world, into the Torah, and created the world. Histakel ba'araisa, Looked into the Torah, Ubara Alma, that's Aramaic, look, created the world. And this means that the nature and makeup of the world are by definition an external expression of the Torah. Everything we see in the world, sciences, architecture, 
technology, all these things are an external expression of Torah. Because if Hashem looked into the Torah to create the world, then everything that's created is a result of that. And therefore, Greek wisdom, all sciences, etc., are known in, in Hebrew parlance as chachmachitzonius, external wisdom. This doesn't mean that it's for outsiders or it should be made external, but what it what it means is that it addresses the external cause of things, whereas a truly meaningful life is one that is guided by and focused on forces that are on one hand beyond the natural world, but at the same time behind it. And when the Jewish people connect with this idea, they're able to see Greek wisdom, they're able to see modern day secularism for the external shell that it is and reject its pretensions of also representing the content of how to live life and what to aspire to. The the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, who recently tragically passed away and, and left a large void, but how he described uh, this this concept that science describes the world of what what is, and Torah describes what ought to be, and it's two entirely separate disciplines. There's the description of what is, and then Description is okay. Now, wh- how should I live my life based on these uh, sets of wisdom? Based on uh, on this knowledge, how do I, I turn it into wisdom and apply it to my life? And that's that's the clash here of of chachma chitzonius of of external wisdom that it's all true and it's all good, but it's like that battery that yes, it's here, but now you got to get you got to power it up. You got to use it to to uh, go somewhere else. Ruf Hutner would quote. And he would say this idea that in the English language, when you describe something on the surface, face, um, the face of a person, it's it's rooted in Latin roots of a facial, a facial expression, um, which which is tied into superficial surface, a facade um, is where it's rooted. Whereas in Hebrew, the way you say a face or something external is panim. Panim, a person's face, also in Hebrew, is panim, is inside. That what we're getting at, what we're, what we're focused in, when a person's expressing, let's say, a beauty, a shine upon him, if, you're, if your dear grandmother ever called you uh, a shine upon him, which is a beautiful face, what it's saying is, what she was saying is not that oh, you look beautiful on the outside and you're aesthetically beautiful, but you're you're beautiful as a, as a as a person. Your face is the truest expression of yourself, which is why, unlike perhaps other cultures that emphasize modesty and cover up the face of burqa, for example, that that would be antithetical to the Torah's understanding of tzniyot, because tzniyot is the truest expression of oneself so every person in the world has to have this mida has to have this characteristic of tzniyot, of expressing your fullest internal self and the face is is that vehicle it's the panim it's what brings out that external uh force in you it's not not to hide and not to to conceal uh yourself but it's to reveal your your inner innermost truth and your 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 genuinity and authenticity and that's perhaps a greater clash here and a, and a, a major outtake for a Hanukkah, a Hanukkah lesson, a story for the ages is, is when the world is so externalized and everything is on that surface level image and browse any social media page and the curation of one's 
even at times vulnerable self, but it comes externalized and it becomes on the outside, it becomes a surface, it becomes a face, it becomes superficial. And the the menorah, the Torah, the, the symbolism of, of the light, of the warmth, is that the truest form of expression is when you could take said expression and you could take your identities and the things that you identify with and as and take all those but concretize them as something internal not that they're dependent on external to you the foods that you like right for example somebody who's a vegetarian that's defining yourself expressing yourself by something external to you you're not a vegetarian you eat foods that are, are strictly vegetarian sourced but that shouldn't be your core identity your core identity has to be things that are intrinsic to you and that define your very existence that's what the meaning of pinim is that it's inside and that's the clash here that you don't want to stop at you don't want to stop at this external layer but you want to get into what's this external layer expressing what truth is being brought out in the world when you see a tree it's not just the tree itself and when you go bird watching it's not just about the beauty of the birds but take all that beauty and get to the core of what it's expressing and what it could uh it could serve to to emanate, to uh, to be apprehended and to be internalized. The morale of, of Prague so beautifully explains that this is why there was a particular detail about the jar of oil being the Kohen Gadol's seal. The high priest had the seal on the oil. And the question is, why, why was this necessary? Any Kohen, any priest was able to light the uh, oil of the menorah. So why was this specifically the high priest? And the, the Kohen Gadol was unique in that it was the only uh, human ever to enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner of inners in the Beis HaMikdash, in the, in the temple. And Lefnayu Lefnim, the inner inners, that's the, the description of the Kohen Gadol, entering the inner of inners. And that's the point, the whole miracle of the oil, the whole message uh, therein, in the, in the victory over the Greeks, is that, it's all about the lefnai lefnim. It's all about the inner of inners. It's all about the heart. It's all about the, the genuinity and the authenticity. And therefore, it's going to be the oil of the Kohen Gadol, the oil of the lefnai lefnim, of the innermost, uh, innermost, because that is holiness. That's the holy of holies. That's the clash where uh, uh, a world today that so denigrates this I even idea of holiness. And the response is, no, lefnai lefnim. You know where holiness is? That it's in the heart. It's when you could take all the, the beauty out in the world, all the wisdom, all the intellect, all the, the great ideas, and not let it stop at a surface level, not let it just be a chachmach but to internalize it and to create that uh, that beautiful harmony between the physical and the spiritual that the Ramah, the great uh, posek of Krakow, uh, Ramosha Israelis, in the 1500s, says that this is the meaning of, of beauty. Maflila asos, Hashem performs most beautiful wonders. He says this means when you can take two uh, so contrasting ideals, such as something physical and spiritual, and blend them in harmony. Harmony is, is found, beauty is found when you could blend harmony of distinct contrasting features and bring it all together. And, and uh, that's what the, the message of the menorah here is. And the ultimate victory over the Greek imposition. This in mind, it could also be explained a very perplexing sort of contradiction. Where on one hand, we live in a great time of publishing and literature that you could access 
real, real deep uh, Torah and authentic and insightful and powerful Torah um, in all sorts of languages and formats and podcasts and books and online. You look at a place like Safari, it's unbelievable, uh, the, the resources. Yet, on the other hand, uh, it's described as a great tragedy, and there's even a national day of fasting to mark this tragedy, where the Greeks translated the Torah into the Greek language. The uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Septuagint, 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 I don't know if you, if you know. Whatever. Uh, The Septuagint, that that was their translation, um, where the Greeks, they gathered together a whole bunch of 70 different uh, sages, put them in separate rooms because they wanted to make sure that uh, they would all get the separate, the the right translation. And it was a great, uh, a lot of great details in that story. Uh, But but without getting sidetracked, the the bottom line is is that it was considered a tragedy that they translated it. So is the proliferation of Torah ideas, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should it be accessible? It seems like it, it should be a good thing. What, what was the tragedy uh, particular in, in that translation? And the idea is because that in itself was the externalization of it. What, what the Greeks were trying to do in that translation was saying that we're going to take that that the original text, which the original text has so much depth to it. There's four different levels of, of learning, pardes. There's the pshat, the drush, the remez, the so, the simple explanation, the expounding on it, the connections that it forms, the letters, the numerical values, the, the Kabbalistic notions, the the deep mystical secrets to each letter. And they wanted to say, you know what, we're going to take all that, all that internal work, all that, what what could be loosely categorized as the oral Torah, the Torah Shabbat Peh, which says that you can't just take something at its surface level of what it's written and move on, but you got to uncover it. You got to unlock the lyrics and the secrets and the beautiful beauty behind each and every uh, message, letter, story, value, and say the Greeks, no, let's translate this, put it in into this external form of translation. Which even of course today, when we we can have a great English translation, it still loses something in the translation. But if you're endeavoring to try to uh, unlock the message and to get even deeper, then of course we should use all the tools at our disposal uh, to do so. But th- there's that key element here of of really internalizing that that the light of the text, the menorah. This is uh, why in Mishle it's called Ner Mitzvah Torah, or Torah is more than just the and the the Medrash says that it's sort of like a candle holder and and the candle itself that you have the candle holder but you need the uh and the candle holder is all the 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 actionable text that we have the actionable calls to action but then you need the light you need the light to shine the the depths behind it and to plummet and that's the uh that's the art of learning Torah, and that's the art of, of what goes on in uh, any modern-day institution that's really dedicated to understanding the text, the yeshiva, uh, any sort of house of learning or schools um, where you're really trying to, to not only learn, but learn how to learn and, unplug- and uncover those, those depths. And that's the, uh, the, the reason why the battle between the translation versus the Jewish way of, of always holding on to it. And, and it, 
drop of a sidebar here is is on a note on the Torah Shabbat Peh on this oral transmission of the oral way of learning it, um, and, and why why do you even need that? So, first off, in order for something to be a, a, a text that's dynamic and alive, a transmission, something that's not just the, you read from a book, <laughs> it needs to be um, re-engaged in over the time. And therefore, if you would have a text that spelled out uh, a way of living 2,000 years ago in every detail, uh, it wouldn't be applicable to today because today we live in a technological age and we have electricity and we have innovations that haven't existed uh, previously. And likely in a 1,000 years and 20 years and five years from now, uh, it would be totally different. So the text itself has to lend itself for re-engagement and re-application. Uh, so that's why it's, it's absolutely necessary because uh, Torah was given at a time and place at the Jews at Sinai, but it has to be uh, timeless and applicable uh, to 2021 as well. And uh, on, a, on a deeper conception, when you have something that is genuine and real to you. You have a relationship, for example. So that relationship, you're not going to be able to spell out, take a marriage, for example. You're not going to be able to spell out exactly, describe the marriage in words and a, a recipe for how we did this marriage and this is how you're going to replicate it. Because by, by putting it into words and externalizing it in just a, a dry book form, you're missing so much of the dynamic, the the internal, the, the inexpressible at times. This is why sometimes a, a, a nigun, a, a tune, a music carries so much more weight than a, a story of just saying the words because there's something, things that can't be expressed in words. And when you express them in words, it ends up just being defined by those that shell of that description, uh, but it loses some of the heart. And in a relationship, and what the Torah is supposed to be, a bris, it's supposed to be a, a covenant, it's supposed to be that 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 ketubah, that, that symbol of the relationship that a Jew has with Hashem. So by just spelling it out and just having it in a, in a written form, that in itself uh, externalizes it. So the main form, the main locus, the the way uh, a Jew could meditate and, and access and develop in a real authentic uh, attachment to Hashem, to a divine uh, source, to the neshama, to your own divine source, the way to do that, it's going to have to be in a dynamic, investing way where you throw yourself into uh, not, not only the text, but you throw yourself into the, to the mind, to the words, to the meanings, the concepts behind it, and you experience it instead of just reading you can't read Torah, you got to learn Torah. That's the idea. And to conclude on a more Kabbalistic note, second Zohar of the day, the Zohar says that there's 10 spheros, there's 10 elements of creation, divine attributes that manifest in the world. And the Zohar associates one of them, the one of Hod, Hod, which in English, I guess, would be translated as Splendor. Uh, splendor as Hanukkah. That's the one that that is relating to Hanukkah. Hanukkah is Hod. So what is Hod and why is it particularly connected to Hanukkah? And the explanation is that Hod, we find this in the Torah, in Parshas Pinchas, that Hashem tells Moshe about Yeshua to give 
from your splendor, give your hode onto Yeshua. And Rashi explains that Moshe's splendor here refers to the glow of his, his countenance, the glow of his face. And like we explained that the face in Hebrew is not that surface level, uh, what you see on the surface, but it's that expression of the internal. So hode, hode then is that expression of, of a revealing and expressing express expression of what's inside the person in terms of both the feelings of the person as well as their their spiritual levels um and that that re- revelation that splendor when it's brought out when the panemius when the internal is brought out into that external expression and likewise the the divine sphera of hod when we when the czar refers to hod that's talking about when hashem's will or hashem's wisdom is expressed in the natural world. And when you're able to perceive that, so you're seeing the splendor, you're seeing the internal being expressed externally. And particularly significant for Hanukkah, where a central theme is where the Greeks are trying to cut off the uh, laws of nature from its source. And that was a crucial point where the, the, the response, the Jewish response is that, no, it's not autonomous and it's not detached, it's attached. And therefore, Hanukkah Hod, which is very much related to Hoda'a of Thanksgiving, of, of, of really recognizing that gratitude and, and uh, seeing that nature itself is what to be grateful for, seeing that all the beauty in the world, it's not there just in its own sake, but it was bestowed and therefore uh, is an opportunity for gratefulness and for just feeling happy and, and uh, privileged to be alive. That concludes section one of the book. If we're so privileged to uh, light the Hanukkah candles tonight and internalize some of these messages, it would be awesome. And uh, be back tomorrow on section B, getting into the actual uh, holiday itself. Super excited for these awesome days ahead.